Hello? Oh, good morning. Am I speaking to case name? A call you don't want to take, but may need to. I'm just calling on behalf of the NHS COVID-19 Trace Programme. Um, I'm phoning to follow up on a text you may have received from Public Health recently, just asking you to provide the details of the people you were in contact with around the time of your COVID-19 symptoms. The system's key to containing coronavirus, now and in future. Lives and livelihoods, our whole way of life could depend on it. But is it working? If it does work, it'll help the government ease current restrictions. But if it doesn't, it means more risk of infection, more economic harm. And now the government's search for a tracking app has stalled. The test and trace programme matters more than ever. Contact tracing will help us to protect your friends, family, the community and the NHS. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm John Pienaar. As part of the launch of Times Radio next Monday for this week only, the podcast is being guest hosted by some of the station's presenters like me. Today is Test and Trace Working. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sometimes with stories like this, it's quite difficult to persuade people to speak, particularly if they've explicitly been told not to talk to journalists. Billy Kember is an investigations reporter for The Times. He's been talking to contact tracers, the people whose job it is to call you up if you've tested positive for COVID-19. But there was a lot of anger and frustration, and also there was a lot of people that felt that it was really important that this system gets it right, and so they wanted to speak up about where it wasn't working in the hope that would change things. A month ago, the Prime Minister promised a test, track and trace operation uh, that will be world-beating, and yes, it will be in place. This system, if it works, should be what helps us all leave lockdown safely without a second spike. And if it doesn't work, more people risk getting sick. And Billy has been finding that many of the tracers are deeply worried about what's happening. Sometimes they'd raised concerns internally and they hadn't had an answer or nothing seemed to have changed. So people were actually much more willing to speak to me as a journalist than perhaps might be expected. So I've spoken to about 20 tracers directly and then heard the experiences of others from closed Facebook groups and other WhatsApp groups and so on, other places where the contact tracers are talking to one another and, and where a contact tracer I've spoken to has, has shared what their colleagues are saying. Billy put me in touch with one of the contact tracers he's been speaking to. 
To preserve her anonymity, her testimony has been revoiced. What I can tell you is that she's a retired nurse practitioner with over 20 years' experience. I asked her why she agreed to speak to us. Well, it was a bit of anger, really, but it, I, I think it was so disorganised. That was the thing. It was really disorganised. It felt like it had been very rushed. I expected it to be better. And to be honest, I expected it to be not so fragmented as it turned out to be. Yeah. I expected to be working with local GP services and hospitals to be more connected. But yes, there'll be teething problems. Just give us a, a sense of what you were finding when you were speaking to these people. Some of the contact tracers that were being hired had applied for what they thought were just generic call centre jobs and, and only discovered it was a contact tracing role when they began the training. Others were clinical staff who knew what they were signing up for, but they were all having a lot of issues. It seemed very rushed to those that were, were signing up for this. I guess when you're looking at this a story like this from the outside, you might say, it's a new system. We haven't been here before, haven't tried this this before. There are bound to be about to be problems. And people are always going to say that the, say, journalists looking at all of this are looking for fault, maybe to magnify those fault. But were you finding that the people you were talking to, the tracers themselves, were upset that alarms were going off in their heads? Yes, exactly that. What was striking here is that tracers had signed up, those who knew what they'd signed up for, with a sort of sense of public duty, and they were keen to be involved and to be doing something to tackle this pandemic. And they were therefore very frustrated that they felt that the, the way in which the training was being run was not adequate and was not equipping them to, to do a job that they felt was very important to do. Billy, can you just explain to us how the system was designed to work? If you are someone who has been tested for COVID and has, has tested positive and you've got the disease, you will be sent a text message or sent an email, depending on what contact details they have for you, and asked to fill in on an online form the uh, details of anyone you've been in close contact with for up to 48 hours before you started showing symptoms. The idea behind the system is that they will then contact everyone you've been in touch with and ask them to self-isolate for 14 days. And the hope is that if they can do that quickly enough and comprehensively enough, they can prevent outbreaks. There are three tiers of contact tracers. The, the government's hired between 15 and 18,000 what they call tier three tracers who are essentially call centre staff whose job it is chiefly to speak to the contacts of people who had been diagnosed with COVID rather than the COVID patients themselves. Above them, there are around 3,000 clinically trained NHS staff who have been hired as tier two tracers. It's their job to speak to anyone who's tested positive for COVID, who, for whatever reason, hasn't put their details into the online form or has provided uh, insufficient details about some people or perhaps just couldn't be reached at all. And then at the top level, tier one, there are Public Health England tracers who are the professionals, if you like, and complicated cases are escalated up there. So if someone has been diagnosed with COVID and they're a teacher at a school or they, they work at a care home or they're in a prison or in an environment where there's a, a real public health risk of a larger scale outbreak, those cases are escalated up and also escalated out to, to local health teams. And the, the all-important business of training this small army of tracers, just take us through that training process, what was right and what was wrong with it. So one of the biggest problems was that there was no access to the bit of the software that actually displays the scripts and shows how you will handle calls with COVID patients or their contacts until just a few hours before the system went live. So no one could practice in the actual way that they would be doing the job. And they just didn't feel equipped to 
make what we're going to be in some cases very sensitive calls and they could be ringing up the the loved ones of someone who's just died from from covid and, and trying to get details about who that person had been in contact with so the training was largely limited to either a web seminars or a lot of reading a sort of self-guided training as they called it there were videos at times from uh, chris witty the chief medical officer which people couldn't access because they were password protected the passwords often didn't work which turned out to be a problem with US keyboards being incompatible with the passwords that we'd put in our UK keyboards. The helplines were absolutely jam-packed and you were on wait for two or three hours. Two or three hours? Two or three hours, most definitely. So sometimes it would be virtually the whole of your shift before you could get logged on. The first training session was a, a mass video call, uh, one or 200 people on the call with one trainer. And uh, as Trace has described it, the first hour or two was spent with people complaining about how they couldn't hear or difficulties with the technical side of things that, that just took up all the trainer's time. The feeling was that this was rushed together and it wasn't really specific to this job, that there were lots of things that, that were thrown in that were just yeah. a sort of routine part of NHS training that weren't particularly relevant on this occasion. Some of the videos were good. Some of them were just about how important we were. Great, but just give us what we're supposed to be doing. A lot of them were duplicated. It was just bitty, fragmented, no personal help if there was something you didn't understand. And it left you feeling when you were just about to be launched into the real world as a, one of the tracers, it left you feeling how... Not ready. I hadn't even seen the contact tracing side of the screen at all at the point it was launched. And in fact, on one day in, I still haven't seen it because the issue with passwords not working. So all these splits and breakdowns and bits of the system and the chain that were not there, it sounds pretty pretty poor when you set it out like that in a list how far is it fair to say that, look, the system was simply malfunctioning at this stage, that it wasn't being managed perhaps as well as it should have been? And how far is it fair to say, look, there are bound to be these teething problems? I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea that it's OK and understandable that there would be teething problems, uh, even on quite a large scale during this time when people were being trained. The system's not yet launched at this point. So to some extent, it doesn't matter yet. And the whole point of a training period is to give you time to iron these things out. Now, none of that really matters to the public at that point. The system isn't yet live. But it was very frustrating for those that had signed up in good faith looking to help. And it was concerning, too, for them. They were worried that, as I say, that they didn't feel equipped to do the job and that it, it all felt rushed and that they therefore had concerns of how it would actually work once the green light was given. Good afternoon and welcome back to Downing Street for the Daily Coronavirus Briefing. The Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, has been publicly and privately criticised and praised inside government and outside throughout this crisis. On May the 27th, he led the government's Daily Coronavirus Briefing. Today we formally launch NHS Test and Trace. This is an incredibly important milestone for the country. The launch was brought forward and it was brought forward quite unexpectedly. The trainers and the tracers and the public had been told it would launch on June the 1st, which was a Monday. And on the previous Wednesday at the daily Downing Street briefing, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, announced it wouldn't be launching on June the 1st. It would be launching the following day. And what really matters is this. 
to protect your friends and your family, testing and tracing must become a new way of life. It was a complete surprise. I think one of the other contact tracers I was in touch with texted me and said, oh, we're going live tomorrow. Suddenly, it was all happening, and I think it was announced on the Wednesday, and we went live Thursday. It was particularly a shock because it still at this point hadn't been sent any logins for what's called CTAS, which is the bit of the software that gives them access to patients' contact details and is also where they access, alongside that, they access the script and, and have yeah. uh, drop-down options to fill in, on, depending on what people say in, in response. Those logins were sent out late that night on the Wednesday evening, or a, rather a link to get their logins. On the Thursday morning, when people signed on to start their shifts and, and clicked on these links to try and get their login details, many found that that whole system had crashed. My concern on that evening was, well, how the hell am I going to do this without access to the actual contact tracing side of it? And we got an email, I think I got one at about 10 o'clock at night, and I had a shift the following day, and I couldn't log on. That password that they'd sent me didn't work, and that was the case for a lot of people I was in touch with. And for much of the day, uh, until at least 4pm, no one could access it, and therefore no one could actually do anything during their shift. They couldn't even log into the most important bit of the software. I mean, it's easy to imagine what people listening to you, listening to this, might make of what they're, they're hearing. This picture of, of stumbles at the stage of the scheme when it was supposed to be picking up speed. But maybe, you know, very telling would be what exactly the tracers were saying at that point. And you were talking to them. What, what were they saying? There was a lot of frustration. And again, understandably, there were people spending hours on helplines and, and sitting there expecting to work and unable to do so. But there was also quite widespread scepticism about the timing and the decision to bring it forward. My personal suspicion was they wanted it to headline the day rather than the Dominic Cummings saga, which was going on longer than they wanted. And there was quite a widespread feeling. This was in the middle of the Dominic Cummings scandal, the, the outcry over the Prime Minister's chief aide's decision to take his family hundreds of miles north during the coronavirus outbreak when he and his wife believed they had the disease. There was scepticism that had been brought forward as a distraction from that and that yeah. the system clearly wasn't ready. They hadn't been sent login details until a few hours before it was due to launch. They didn't feel they were adequately trained. And, and on the first day, a key part of the software immediately topples over. It just mm. didn't look like it was ready to them. And, and they thought this was a political move rather than one merited by the preparations. I definitely thought it was a piece of spin because it was not ready and we have been told virtually the day before. I was reading an email saying, oh, you know, we're really excited about launching next week. <laughs> and then suddenly we were launching the next day. I was keen there not to ask too many leading questions about the timing in the, in the context of what was then a huge story, the Dominic Cummings affair and his alleged and denied breaking of the lockdown. But you're saying that's what many of the tracers you spoke to were saying. They felt the system was being rushed in, maybe prematurely, to try and draw attention from away from those negative headlines and maybe, maybe at some considerable cost. They were also concerned, and some of them quite angry, about the Dominic Cummings affair, that it would affect their ability to command trust from the public and that if they were asking people to self-quarantine for 14 days, and in many cases these would be people that had no symptoms and there was a, a request that would 
uh, interfere with their lives quite significantly, that they were being asked to do this at a time when uh, they felt the senior member of the government hadn't followed the rules. And, mm. and they were very concerned that people in turn would say, well, why do we need to follow the rules if, if he isn't? And that yeah. they would face uh, hostility on, on the calls they were going to be making. At least three quarters of people that I was spoke to brought up Dominic Cummings as, yeah. as the reason behind the timing. It was being discussed in internal chat rooms and private Facebook groups that, that contact tracers had set up to support one another. Well, that's interesting. Three quarters. If your sample was three quarters, it's, it's about the same proportion of people in the country, according to those opinion polls, who felt that Dominic Cummings had broken the rules and was on the wrong side of the argument at that, that point. Let me ask you about what's happened since. How has the system been working since then? In the first few days, uh, it became increasingly clear that there were very, very few calls being made. In fact, all in the first few days of the traces I was speaking to were spending long hours with no calls to make whatsoever. The way the system works is that you, you get assigned a contact to ring, you get their notes and their phone number. Uh, and there's also a sort of updated list of unassigned cases for you to pick up if you've not got anything to do. So you get a bit of insight into how busy everyone else is. I've been doing this since mid-May and I've had, as I say, about five or six cases. It's not busy. There was nothing at all for the first two or three weeks. I had nothing this week and last week I actually had one shift where I had two calls and that's been the totality of it. So how have you been filling your time while you've been there on duty waiting to call but not making any? Oh, it's very boring. I mean, initially, I went over the training again and again because I was poised and ready for these cases to come through. But after the first few sessions, that kind of faded a bit. So I do workouts, I've done my nails and given myself a pedicure on another occasion. We just keep refreshing the screen to see if any cases have come through. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, what about the reaction? Because all of this was taking place in a very, very bright spotlight and you know you've mentioned the suspicions of some in the system as well as around the country well that this was being rushed through as a kind of diversionary tactic trying to get something positive 
to say you were watching that reaction. How did you read it, as including the reaction in politics and in Parliament, Billy? So one of the interesting things that happened was on the day of the launch, there was a briefing for MPs with Dido Harding, Baroness Harding, who is a Conservative peer, the former chief executive of Talk Talk, and the person appointed by the government to run the test and tracing system. On this call with MPs, Labour MPs said, she said it won't be fully operational till the end of June. The message was, bear with us. That was very different from what was being said publicly by the Department of Health, who insisted that it was fully operational, that everything was working as planned, essentially. On all that you've seen and found out, all that you were were told, it was never going to be easy. You looked at it in some detail. Can you say you were in some way surprised by what you learned about this system and the way that it was working or not working? I think the the thing that was most surprising was the the gap between how it was being portrayed publicly and what was actually going on and whether that was really necessary because I think people would have had plenty of sympathy for the idea that there were teething problems, we're just getting this ready. But the way in which it's been presented, everything's working fine, there are no issues, it's fully operational. Those inside the system were told repeatedly to stop talking to journalists. I just think that that was unhelpful. The consequences of that are, at the moment, not hugely significant for the public, although this system will only become more important. But I I think it's had a big effect on the morale and the willingness of those who signed up for jobs in in this tracing system to continue to do it, because many of them now are in a situation where they've had a few shifts, not had any calls or had very few calls. I still have concerns about training, about who they report problems to and and so on. And they're now finding that they can't book shifts for the next few weeks and and months because there's been a significant reduction in the number of shifts made available. Mm. None of those things have been publicly acknowledged. And Baroness Harding has said, She's very happy with the extra capacity. She'd much rather have extra capacity than not, which, which of course, is understandable. But if you have hired 25,000 people, and as we subsequently found out, they contacted 32,000 people in the first week, barely more than one contact per member of staff hired, then you currently have a huge excess capacity. And if there's not a willingness to acknowledge that and to be honest with staff working in the system about how busy they're likely to be, then I I think you've got a huge problem. There are a lot of people who are expressing frustration and saying they're considering giving up. Have you seen evidence of of improvements, Billy, since things were, were looking pretty rough? Some of the technical stuff is getting better. It's, it's taken a while. I mean, we're several weeks in now. But the issues with software crashing and problems people logging in seem to be more limited. That said, NHS professionals removed the helpline number because they were so overwhelmed with phone calls. On Thursday, the government released the latest figures for the contact tracing project, and it shows something surprising. The new call centre Army is only handling around 10% of contact tracing cases. The rest are being traced by existing Public Health England and local health protection teams. The number of people that are going into the system at the moment is still relatively low, and in part that's because the number of people testing positive at the moment is much lower than it has been. Baroness Harding has talked about the winter being the real test for this and whether or not this system can help prevent or really be central to preventing a second wave of cases. It's not working well yet. I think... There have been improvements. We're learning on the job as we go along. And I would hope, I mean, if we get another surge now, I don't think it's fit for purpose yet. Can you think of an an example where a delay in the system or some problem might have actually led to harm? Possibly one case I had. I phoned up 
to speak to a patient who had tested positive uh, could only speak to a relative who said, oh, they're actually on a shift at the hospital. They're a nurse. <laughs> and although they'd had a text, obviously you don't carry your mobile phone on a shift at the hospital. So then I have to escalate this case. But there was no mechanism by which I could say, this is very urgent, because obviously they were positive, probably shedding virus and working somewhere in the hospital with yeah. vulnerable patients. In the worst possible environment. In the worst possible environment to be testing positive. But I was just ordinarily escalated up, which is what I'm supposed to do with it. Escalated in this case means flag this as an urgent case. I would have wanted to get on the phone straight away and say, OK, get them out of there. Should the system have been able to catch that case? Yes, I think so. I mean, there should be some way of prioritising healthcare workers to the top of the queue when test results come through because of the environments they might be working in. And there's no such system? Not that I know of. Part of that would be with the testing. There's no way for me to escalate it any more urgently than other things. We've heard the Prime Minister, the Health Secretary, talk about it being the public's civic duty to cooperate with this system when they're asked to take some kind of action under, under what would be bound to be difficult circumstances. And you're, you're suggesting that perhaps the the way that it was introduced, the way that it was rushed, which some feel was a perhaps a response to the Cummings controversy and the way that it's been managed since and the attempt to, to close down negative publicity. You think that undermines the very basis of the system in as far as it relies on public cooperation? At the moment, those traces who have actually got through to people and on the, on the rare occasion they've been given calls to make have been largely pleasantly surprised by how willing people are to adhere to what they're being asked to do. But uh, these things can change. And I, I think that's what's at risk when you have problems with this system. There are also, I think, two other areas of concern that could affect trust. One is around what happens to the data and probably how England will be keeping the data contacts provided for 20 years, according to their, their privacy policy, which is concerning to some people. And the other is around the risk of fraudulent calls or scammers taking advantage of this system to make calls to people where they pretend to be contact tracers and are, and are instead looking to get bank details or some sort of financial advantage. The, the government's response to that latter point was quite relaxed and I think worryingly so early on. And I think it will be very evident when somebody rings you, these are professionally trained individuals and sitting uh, over, if you like, the, the telephone interviewers uh, and email senders uh, are a group of uh, senior clinical professionals. One of the medical advisors at the Danish Street press conference offered the assurance that people would know it was a contact tracer ringing because they sound professional and obviously that that's not going to work scammers are certainly sound very professional and can spoof the number they're ringing from to look like they're coming from the official number and and, and so on there are other potential issues that, that may bubble up as this system continues that, that could also affect public trust how far but is it possible to say or to judge whether this system is going to be fit for purpose when and if it's most truly needed, if we ever need to avoid the, the spectre of another, a second wave and a second lockdown? I think the truth on that is that it is too early to say. We just don't have the data yet that the number of cases that are going into the system hasn't 
reached anywhere near the levels it, it might need to cope with. I think there are certainly grounds for concern with how it's been run so far and with the way in which those problems risk trust on, on both sides from the, from the public and, and from those working for the system. This system is crucial to our ability to gradually relax lockdown and to allow people to go back to normal life and perhaps even to go back to work in offices. It was launched at the same time as that first big relaxation when people were allowed to uh, meet up with others in parks and, and start having people around to their gardens and so on. We don't know how quickly those people are, are getting tested and how quickly those test results are going into the system. And, and, yeah. and that's really the crucial thing, because this is all about speed and limiting the, the possibility of somebody, so-called super spreader, for example, uh, infecting a lot of people uh, unwittingly. The other thing that I suppose we should touch on is how important trust is in the system and the public's willingness to provide personal information to contact tracers and also to self-isolate when asked to do so. You can see scenarios in which people have been in close contact with people they shouldn't have been in contact with. Perhaps they've broken the rules or perhaps they've been having an affair, whatever it may be. For this to work, the vast majority of people are going to have to be willing to provide their information and, and to follow instructions from contact tracers. The government's been keen to keep that as something that's done on a, on a trust basis as a voluntary scheme rather than having penalties or fines or whatever it may be yeah. but for this to work the public has to retain faith in it and the contact tracers themselves have to retain faith in the system the number of cases at the moment is in decline and we may have time before this system really needs to be functioning at full throttle but the the concern is too much damage done to morale on both sides and and to number of people that remain employed and so on before that happens How do you feel now? I feel concerned. Concerned at what might happen over the next few weeks. And I've got no faith in the government, really. But I've got faith in most people being sensible and keeping to the social distancing because I think they have been, you know? There's well-publicised exceptions, but I think in the main, people are sensible about it, and we'll just have to have faith in the general public that they will keep this virus at bay and keep washing their hands and all the rest of it. Hope and trust, so much depends on it. But the news last week, the government was pulling its own contact tracing app and turning to technology developed by Apple and Google felt like another false start of the kind many have rushed to lay at the door of the government. Senior government officials said they hoped to get a version of the app ready to introduce before the winter. But it was possible it could never be made to work. That would only magnify the vital importance of a working contact tracing system. We contacted the Department of Health and Social Care for comment. A spokesperson said, NHS Test and Trace is here to support the reopening of society. It is undoubtedly already curbing the spread of COVID-19 and therefore helping to save lives. The spokesperson added, in the first two weeks, tens of thousands of people have engaged with the NHS test and trace service by taking a test if they have symptoms, sharing their contacts and following the advice to self-isolate. We're working to reach more people and making improvements to the service to do that. They went on to say the claim that the launch was brought forward to distract from the headlines about Dominic Cummings was inaccurate. 
Long before any conclusive inquiry into the way this pandemic was handled, many will decide for themselves who deserves praise and who gets the blame. All our pre-pandemic assumptions about our politics and politicians could change, along with the way we live our daily lives. But before that, millions of livelihoods and who knows how many lives depend on controlling the coronavirus and avoiding a new lockdown that could be disastrous to the life and economic well-being of the country. After such a troubled start to the Test and Trace programme, we can only hope. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, John Pienaar, and my guests, Times Investigations reporter Billy Kemba and an anonymous contact tracer. You can read more of Billy's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Edward Drummond and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Leo Hornack and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella, music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, I hope you'll enjoy listening to my afternoon programme on Times Radio. Join me as I talk about the important issues of the day to leading experts, journalists and guests. Don't forget to join us for the launch of Times Radio at 6am on Monday the 29th of June. To listen, find us on DAB Radio, your smart speaker, online at times.radio and via our Times Radio app. I'll be there every Monday to Thursday, 4pm to 7pm on Times Radio. Know your times. Times.